Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is Chapter 3 of Edwards, Federalism. And federalism, very simply put, is just the way of organizing power between different levels of government. In the United States, you see this as local, state, and federal governments. And the division between these states means that they divide and conquer different tasks. They are allowed to pass different policies, different laws, and influence uh, different policies and laws at different levels. They're allowed to control some unique things, but they're also allowed to share power. Local governments and state governments will take on uh, similar tasks. Uh, state and federal governments will take on similar tasks, and then they will have distinct tax tasks within those governments as well. And this form of government is not super uncommon around the world, but it is very different in the United States compared to other governments. State and local governments often get pushed around in other nations, but in the United States, because we feared a king and an absolute monarchy, we uh, put in specific limits to limit the amount of power that the federal government had and gave a lot of power to the states. And so the federal government in the Constitution is given a strict set of uh, distinct powers, and the state governments are given basically everything else. The Tenth Amendment says that any power not given to the federal government is handed off to the states, and the states have that power. And so we're going to define two terms really quick. Intergovernmental relationships are simply the sort of relationships or the sort of behind the scenes of two different types of government. So state government working with a local government, a local government working with the federal government, or the federal government working with a state government. And another term you're going to need to know are confederations. Confederations are essentially a weak federal government with an alliance of states. Think of the Articles of Confederation where we had a very weak federal government and basically all power was guaranteed to the states. Or think of the Confederacy, a group of states fighting for uh, you know, their right to own slaves. Right? A group of, of states fighting against or trying to fight against a weak government. Right? In the United States, we have federalism. Uh, federalism is one of the cornerstones of our democracy. It's one of the most important things to making our democracy work. But that is not always true in uh, every nation. Not every nation has federalism. Uh, but in general, nations that do have federalism follow two rules. They are typically large nations in both area and in population. This means that they have a diverse amount of people, a diverse amount of interests, and a diverse amount of living standards or living conditions. This divides power between uh, administrations more easily. Think of the United States, right? Uh, a law in Arkansas is not always an appropriate law in Alaska, which would not always be an appropriate law in Maine, which would not always be an appropriate law in Hawaii, right? Dividing that power means that the states can decide how they want each of their uh, each of their state laws and state governments to look. How can each state protect its people and give the people what they want, be more representative of the people's interests? What the people want in Montana is not always uh, what the people want in Massachusetts. That's very clear. They have two very different styles of governing, two very different lo uh, local and state officials, and they vote for the president typically uh, in different ways. Montana is a Republican state generally. Massachusetts is a Democratic state, uh, typically. And so, essentially, by having a large population and a large area, 
the United States divides its power up between its states and its local government to basically make it easier for government to do the more basic things, establish a foundation for which the federal government can come in and fill those cracks in. And across the world, we have states like Mexico, Canada, India, and Australia, which are all very large countries with a very diverse set of a very diverse population with a diverse set of interests, right? India, the most populated uh, country in the world, Australia, Canada, and Mexico being uh, fairly populated. Mexico, certainly uh, extremely populated, but Canada and Australia are more an example of larger countries. Australia and Canada being, uh, I believe, the fifth and second uh, largest country in the world, uh, if I'm correctly guessing off the top of my head. But generally, what's important to know is that uh, federalism leads to democracy, and it is also seen typically in areas with massive populations and uh, with a large uh, country, within a large country. And so why America specifically? So when America was first being settled by the British, British charters divided people and the purpose of the states into different groups, right? Think back to A push. Virginia was established mostly for economic reasons. Uh, people wanted to grow cotton or tobacco and make uh, grow these cash crops and then sell that back to uh, Europe and make a lot of money really fast. But people in Massachusetts, they were more interested in religious freedom. They wanted to free, the Puritans wanted distance from the British crown and wanted to be able to practice their own religion. And because these different charters were set up for 13 different colonies, 13 different groups of people were established. And this continues even to modern day. And especially back in the 1700s, people identified more with their states rather than the federal government. The idea of being an American citizen didn't exist. It was more being uh, a New Yorker or being from Massachusetts or being from Virginia. It wasn't about being an American. It was about being whatever state you were from, right? People identified more with their state, not as Americans more broadly, because it was a very general term. And a lot of people didn't see a lot in common with other people outside of their areas. Of course, today, a lot of that has broken down, mostly because communication is easier and travel is easier. But back then, people would mostly identify more with their states, and this would lead to federalism. A large federal government with all of the power would not be uh, possible. The people simply wouldn't allow it. And so state governments get a lot of power. And you see this in the Constitution. The Constitution allows states to run their own federal elections. We do not have a single national election uh, every four years. We have 50 different elections that all get pulled into one election, right? The Electoral College protects states, or at least that is what it is designed to do. Uh, it is designed to protect uh, the voice of each state. And so we do not have one national election every four years. We have 50 different elections. Montana has its own election where it assigns its own electoral votes. New York has its own election. Florida has its own election. Illinois has its own election. Texas has its own election. And together, they all come together, cast electoral votes, and that's how we decide the president. It is not the national, it is not a national popular vote. It is not even a national vote. It is 50 different states plus DC coming together. States also have the power to ratify constitutional amendments. Yes, Congress 
is allowed to pass constitutional amendments, but the ultimate power to ratify the Constitution and make it law comes within the states. It also protects states' representation. In the Electoral College, it allows states to gerrymander or to essentially control how their districts are drawn. It allows states, at least back when the Constitution was made, to appoint their own state senators. State legislators would vote for their own senators. And, like I said with the Electoral College, the states are able to decide how their representation, uh, at least for the presidency, can be assigned. Congress also is not allowed to divide up states. If a state is already created, you can't divide it up. You can't make a whole new state out of a, out of a different state, right? Uh, if the United States wanted to, they couldn't split up New York. New York is basically uh, the same way it's going to look now and forever, right? Unless New York votes to essentially make it like split in two and make a different state, Congress can't just come in and say, you know, uh, rural New York and New York City are going to be two different states. Congress simply can't do that. The state has to agree to that. And also Congress can't tax interstate trade. If New York and New Jersey uh, trade goods, Congress can't tax that. They can't put tariffs on that. They can't do anything with that. The federal government has to stay out of interstate trade. And there are also limits put on state governments. State governments have to follow human rights, mostly with the Bill of Rights, right? They can't infringe on people's freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, right? Et cetera, et cetera. The people's rights, individual freedoms are protected by the United States Constitution, and state governments have to follow that. And also, state governments can't run foreign policy. That's given to the presidency and the executive branch in general. States really are not allowed to negotiate, you know, treaties. It'd be very strange if, uh, you know, you had to convince all 50 states to declare war for uh, at any point, right? It, it would be very impractical to have every state run their own uh, foreign policy. Now, with all this said, there are clearly a lot of powers divided between the different states. But also, there are shared powers that the state and federal government are allowed to share. The biggest one is taxation. The state government and the federal government are allowed to tax their people uh, irrespective of each other. Essentially, the federal government can set its own taxation policy, the states can set their own taxation policy, and generally, they don't really, they don't really clash with each other. Uh, they generally are, the state and federal government are not allowed to influence each other's policies. But you also see this in policing, in healthcare, in workers' rights, in uh, civil rights cases, right? The federal and state governments share a lot of power, and they might divide how exactly they enact that power or enforce those laws, but they do share some amount of power within uh, these government entities. So, ultimately, who has the power? The national government. The national government, or the federal government, has the power. This is called the national supremacy. The federal government has the ultimate say, the final say, and all be all. State and local governments can't enact their own policies, can't enact their own uh, laws that go against the federal government. The federal government is sort of the second tier, right? It goes, the Constitution is first. Federal government, state governments, local governments have to follow the Constitution. Then you've got uh, the federal government's laws, national laws passed by Congress and enforced by the presidency. And then you have treaties, uh, uh, typically international treaties between different nations that have to be followed by the states as well. And then you get down to state constitutions, state governments, um, and then local governments, uh, 
perhaps a, a local board or a local school board, right? But essentially, the federal government sits on top. They get to they get to control everything that is national supremacy. And there have been a lot of there's been a lot of wiggle room within this national supremacy, and a lot of uh, testing of how far it can go. There are a few major uh, turning points within the United States in which the nat the federal government established that they have supremacy over the state governments. The first one is the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, right? Uh, in the 1860s, when the Civil War broke out, uh, essentially the federal government expanded its powers, passed the 13th Amendment, banning slavery, 14th Amendment, banning discrimination, and 15th Amendment allowing black men to vote, right? This massively expands the federal government's ability to get involved in the states. And if, say, a southern state like South Carolina was not allowing black men to vote, the federal government could step in and say, no, 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 you have to do this. You have to allow these black men to vote. Now, it should be noted, the federal government oftentimes did not do that for like 80 years of its existence. But, at least in theory, the federal government had expanded its power to be able to go into these states and enforce these human rights. And then, of course, at the Civil Rights Movement, um, the federal government sort of realizes, oh yeah, no, we have that power. Uh, we can go back into these states and start enforcing these laws, start enforcing, you know, the Constitution, right? And that essentially expands the power of the federal government. An example of something that does not is the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment... Basically, uh, think, of, think of all of the powers that could exist of a government, right? The federal government has a small box of whatever the founders wanted to put in it. The founders decided to put in uh, rules within the Constitution that said, okay, the federal government can uh, tax and spend. They can uh, regulate interstate commerce. They can punish pirates. They can run D.C., right? These powers are specifically mentioned within the Constitution. They are enumerated clauses. They are specifically stated. Anything not specifically stated gets handed off to the state governments. The state governments are allowed all the other powers. This is essentially what the Tenth Amendment does. It says that all powers not assigned to the federal government in the Constitution are instead assigned to the states. What this means, going back to national supremacy, is not that the states have power over uh, the federal government. The federal government has the final say in whatever they're allowed to do, right? The federal government cannot do whatever they want, but if they are working within the conditions of the Constitution, they can, they have presidency over state and local governments. If they are not working within what the Constitution says they can do, they are uh, creating laws that are unconstitutional and therefore null and void. They're not allowed to do that. Local and state governments are essentially given the leftovers of what powers the federal government has. Uh, it, it is generally given to the state and local governments to uh, basically sort out everything else. Federal government gets this, very limited powers, want to make sure we don't have a king or a dictatorship or anything like that. So we're going to divide up all of this power among the states and make sure that they are able to do everything else. If if a new problem arises that is not listed in the Constitution, the state governments will handle it. We don't need to worry. Uh, if it's good for the country, all the states will pass it to make sure, um, you know, 
it can that a good law is able to be enforced and enacted. That is generally how things would would go in a in a normal country. The United States is very much not a normal country. We have Florida, so you know the best case scenario is oftentimes thought of by the founders because the founders didn't live in Florida. Another example of states protecting their powers is the 11th Amendment, the First Amendment not within the Bill of Rights. It essentially says that people cannot sue their states. People were fearful that uh, of, of national overreach, that the Supreme Court would tell the states uh, what to do or how to run their, their, their state, and that random people could just start suing whatever state they disagreed with, right? If a New Yorker didn't like what was happening in Maryland, they could just sue the state of Maryland and say, you know what, you, you're not allowed to do this. And the Supreme Court could step into that case and say, you know what, we actually agree with that New Yorker. And these states were really fearful of that. They didn't want the federal government uh, to be able to do that. So they put limits on what people could sue the states for. And they basically allowed people to essentially only be able to sue the states if uh, to defend their liberties. This would be, this is something like abortion or gay marriage or contraception, where people believe that they are entitled to freedom of speech, freedom of protest, or some other freedom listed within the Constitution, and the state government is not allowing them to do that. And so they sue the state government for that, right? We saw this all the time in the civil rights era, and uh, during uh, the lead up to the Civil War, people suing their states because they were not protecting black Americans' uh, rights and freedoms outlined in the Constitution. Now, most of the time, those, those suits didn't work out in favor of those people uh, who were having their rights trampled upon. But uh, the case is still, is still there. Uh, essentially, you can't just have random people from across the world or even within the United States suing random states all the time. Uh, because that's not that's not how the states work. The states get to con get to control how their policies and how their uh, ideas are going to be interpreted. They don't want random people across the country deciding how one state has to run its own government. They just they want a division between the states and to allow the people living within that state to decide how their government should respond to X issue. Now let's look. Let's go on to some of the most uh, powerful parts of the Constitution that empower uh, the federal government. And the biggest one is the Necessary and Proper Clause, or the Elastic Clause, as it's sometimes referred to. And this is the big one. This is the big, big clause. The Necessary and Proper Clause expands the federal government massively. And so to talk about Necessary and Proper, we need to talk about implied powers. So implied powers are essentially this idea that there are powers that the federal government needs to have to enforce, uh, you know, X power granted within the Constitution. A good example of this would be McCulloch v. Maryland, where essentially Maryland says, hey, the federal government can't establish uh, a national bank. They're not allowed to. The Constitution doesn't say the federal government can establish a national bank. Therefore, it's not within their power to do it, right? The federal government has X X number of powers, right? And they are stepping outside of this. This is what Maryland believes. They're not allowed to create a national bank. Don't set up national banks in our states. We'll handle it. Federal government's not given the right uh, to, uh, you know, establish a national bank. So why are they allowed to, right? Supreme Court rules, actually, 
they can establish a national bank because they are combining two laws. They're combining the necessary and proper clause, and they're combining uh, the government's ability to uh, tax and spend for the general welfare of American citizens. Essentially, what necessary and proper says is that uh, there are a bunch of rules listed in the Constitution. And some of these rules also have additional rules that need to be tagged on that make it so that the government can uh, both fulfill their constitutional duties, say, punishing pirates, but also actually do it in like a reasonable way. So with punishing pirates, what do you need? You need a navy. So the government's going to be able to establish the Department of, of Defense, or the Department of Navy, as it would, would have been known at that time, right? Uh, also, to punish pirates, you're going to need you're going to need federal prisons. You're going to need uh, federal courts. You're going to need to be able to establish federal courts. You're going to be able you're going to need to be able to tax uh, individuals to get the funding to build these courts. You're going to need um, to create pensions for sailors to be able to send these people out to arrest pirates. Right? Uh, there are so many things not listed in the Constitution that need to be there to actually enforce. Uh, you know, what is actually said in the Constitution. And so what necessary and proper does, it essentially says, hey, if you're not able to do X that's listed in the Constitution, you can do all of these other things that would make it reasonable for you to be able to uh, be able to influence this law or be able to create this policy. Essentially, uh, necessary and proper clause can't be loot can't be used alone. It has to be used with another uh, explicit power, something that's explicitly said in the Constitution, along with uh, necessary and proper. That it's necessary and proper to do this next thing. If A is equal to B, then we need C, right? If we need to punish pirates, we need a navy. We need a federal court system. We need to be able to do these things. And even if it's not said in the Constitution that we're able to do these things, it is necessary for the government to do it and proper for the United States government to do this to enforce this thing that is said in the Constitution. It's a very complicated thing, uh, but essentially McCulloch v. Maryland says that the necessary and proper clause can be used to establish a national bank. And it is used time and time again to establish new powers of the federal government and leads to the federal government becoming more and more powerful as time goes on throughout the United States. We have two other really big uh, clauses within the Constitution that are extremely important. We have the Commerce Clause, essentially uh, the, that Congress can promote economic development. Congress is able to, quote, tax and spend for the general welfare of people. This essentially means that Congress is allowed to tax people, and then they're able to spend that money that they collected from all the people on X. Healthcare, infrastructure, uh, student loan forgiveness, they're able to do whatever they want, right? Congress can pass whatever rule they want as long as it promotes the general welfare of people. Now, what is the general welfare of people? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a, it's an an intentionally vague term to make sure that you know if the federal government really needs to do something, uh, but it's not explicitly said in the Constitution. You've always got this vague 
general welfare, right? You know, does the federal government need to subsidize uh, oil companies? There's a debate to be had there, but there's a case that subsidizing oil lowers oil prices for people and lower prices on oil help with the general welfare of Americans. Lower oil prices are generally liked by Americans, uh, and so it promotes the general welfare, right? Essentially, it expands powers uh, to be able to allow the federal government to basically spend the money in any way, as long as it promotes the general welfare of people. Today, these powers include so much more, though, than just taxing and spending money for infrastructure, building a bridge, uh, these include New Deal policies, which expand workplace protections and regulations, the Civil Rights Act, which regulates the rights and individual freedoms of people. It essentially expands the federal government to, to promote capitalism, competition, and equality in work life. The Commerce Clause is huge. It is basically everything the, the federal government does. The Commerce Clause and the ability for them to regulate interstate commerce are huge. Essentially, they're able to do pretty much anything, right? The federal government is given a, a small list of things that they're actually allowed to do, and then the Commerce Clause, and the Commerce Clause is essentially able to be interpreted in such a way that gives the federal government so much more power. And in the last hundred years, that has been done so by the United States Supreme Court and by politicians to essentially empower Congress to do a whole lot more than what the founders would have wanted. And then finally, we have the full faith and credit as a very, very important thing. And this is essentially saying that all states must acknowledge licenses granted in another state, right? This is marriage licenses, divorce licenses, driver's licenses, contracts, patents, basically anything that the states give has to be accepted by all the other states, right? Because that would make it so much harder to do business or to move across this country or to drive across this country for any reason. Imagine if you had to pass a driver's test in all 50 states to be able to drive in all 50 states. It would be madness. It would be horrible. That would be a horrible system. And so all 50 states basically pinky promised to each other, we're all going to have fair and equal, generally the same uh, driver's test for new drivers. And we're all going to make them take the same tests, have the same requirements, do all these same things. And at the end of the day, everybody who has the driver's license is going to be uh, nationally known as a safe driver, right? We are all going to have different systems, but that all arrive towards a safe driver getting their driver's license. And because all of these states, remember, they pinky promised. You can't break a pinky promise. Because all these states pinky promised, all of them are going to accept all of the other ones, right? Texas, if Texas issues a driver's license and you get pulled over in New York, New York is still going to accept that driver's license. Even though it's not issued in New York, they're still going to accept it because it was issued in Texas. Same for any other state, right? States are going to accept patents. They're going to accept copyright claims. They're going to, they're going to accept marriage or divorce letters, right? They are going to accept all of these things because it just makes it easier. It makes it easier to have economic activity and these nations. States will also extradite criminals to other states. Not technically required, but pretty much normal, right? If, if somebody is a Florida resident 
and they break a crime. I know, shock. Florida resident breaking a crime. They break a crime in Oregon. Oregon is generally going to be expected that they're going to send that prisoner or that criminal back to Florida to face trial in Florida. Again, not required by the states, but generally speaking, states don't like having criminals within their borders, so they generally follow the extradition pretty well. And additionally, it's accepted that most states are not going to uh, create new laws or, or exceptions for people who are out of state. Essentially, if somebody moves from Wisconsin to Michigan, Michigan's not going to be allowed to uh, create higher taxes for them or discriminate based on uh, what state they were born in, etc. Right? People are not going to move across this country and face different types of discrimination or higher taxes or different types of government threats, right? The government is not going to punish people for being born in another state. They're going to accept that they are Americans first who were born in another state second. And they that doesn't mean that they have less rights or more rights. It just means they have an equal amount of rights across all of the states. There are interesting exceptions for college, which you've probably already been thinking about because I imagine many of us are planning for college. You're in an AP class after all. Um, so it's an interesting exception that uh, states, if, if you go out of state for college, they're allowed to charge you an additional fee uh, for being out of state. Uh, it doesn't really follow it, but as a general rule, uh, states are not allowed to just sort of punish people randomly for being uh, from another state. Uh, essentially, that they'll all allow for Americans to travel or live in another state without too much headache or barriers of entry. Essentially, uh, the Full Faith and, and Credit Act are essentially ways of making your life easier, less painful. You have to deal with less government bureaucracy and less government pains. And so generally, uh, the Full Faith and Credit of, of the United States is just a good thing. It just makes it easier to live in the United States and to move between states. And now let's talk about uh, the different types of federalism. So we have dual federalism, where federal and state governments are going to deal with separate issues. The federal, for example, will deal with foreign policy, while the states will deal with uh, education. And this, is, this dominated American politics in the, in the beginning, right? Again, they were fearful of a king or a powerful authority rising, and so they divided power. They said the federal government gets these powers, state governments get these powers, stay out of each other's business. Don't don't interfere. Don't do anything. We're going to keep your powers here, your powers here. Don't touch each other. Today, it's a little less, right? Uh, cooperative federalism is how I would describe the American government today. Co in cooperative federalism, the federal and state governments deal with the same issues, maybe in different ways, right? So let's take infrastructure, for example. The state governments generally are on track for dealing with their infrastructure. You've got a pothole, the local government or the state government's going to deal with that. But the federal government might give you some money, right? The federal government might give a state $5 million to fix all their potholes in a city. And that state is going to hire, uh, hire and contract a business to go out and, do, and fill these potholes. They're going to close down their streets. They're going to uh, use the police to redirect traffic. Right, they're going to do the actual on-the-ground stuff, 
while the federal government might just give you money. And this is what you get with education and so many other issues, right? The federal government generally gives you money and the states actually deal with sort of uh, how that money gets used towards promoting the general welfare of people. This mostly ends up as state responsibilities, but the federal government does kind of share the cost and provide money to be able to do it. The feds, for providing this money, give guidelines. Oftentimes this could mean, hey, um, we're going to give you all this money to build this highway, but we want you to raise the drinking age to 21. This is what Ronald Reagan did when he was president. He said, we're not going to give any uh, highway funds to states that do not comply with having a drinking age uh, that is 21 or above, right? Essentially, if you allow, um, you know, these drunk young drivers to get behind the wheel, uh, you are putting unnecessary, uh, you're putting uh, people who are driving in the, on the highway at unnecessary danger. And so we're not going to give you any, any federal fundings until you enforce these guidelines. Or the federal government might say, hey, uh, we're going to give you all this money so you can contract to build a new highway in uh, this, this neighborhood. But you need to take on these anti-discrimination practices as well. Right. When you're giving this contract to people, you've got to make sure that they're hiring uh, a, a diverse set of construction workers. Right. They can't all be straight white men who are, uh, you know, middle class. Right. You've got to, you know, you have to have an amount of diversity within this group to make sure that these funds are not being just spent on uh, the same groups of people over and over again, but so that they're being uh, diversely spread out among the American people. Right. And states generally deal uh, with these divisive social issues. So the federal government generally gets involved with economic issues, infrastructure, education, right, health care, uh, college costs. Right. States generally deal with like the actual big social issues, gay marriage, abortion, civil rights cases. And then eventually, when enough states begin to enact these policies, the federal government steps in and says, hey, maybe we start adopting this as a national standard. Um, and also states generally have to deal uh, and adopt federal minimum standards. They have to adopt, they ha they have to adopt uh, for example, minimum wages. The federal minimum wage right now is $7.25 an hour. States are allowed to go above that, but they can't go below it. The federal government sets the limit. States can sit at that limit or they can go above it. But generally speaking, those states have to deal with the divisive social issues and also adopt mandates from the federal government. And then we're going to talk about kind of a thing that doesn't really exist, to be honest, but devolution is essentially where the federal government gets weaker. It doesn't really happen all that often, but there is a notable uh, example of this, which was the Republicans in the 1990s sought to return policies to the states. They repealed federal speed limits. They lowered state funds from the government. And then the Republicans sort of realized, like, oh, actually, giving all these power back, giving all this power back to the states, shrinks our amount of power, and also, like, we're the ones in charge. So, uh, Republicans basically flipped from the '90s to the early 2000s, and essentially said, you know, what? we're just going to start expanding federal power. We're going to loosen regulations. We're going to create education bills. We're going to force higher jail sentences, and so much more. Right? So, devolution is uh, this term of where the federal government actually shrinks in power. 
and it happens very rarely because why 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 would any why would any party that worked so hard to get into power to enact all this change say you know what i know we made a lot of lofty promises to our voters but what if we just kick this issue to the states no federal no federal government is going to to do that right generally speaking if you give politicians the power to enact change they're not going to say uh, we're going to kick this to another state to make that change for us. They're going to make the change themselves. When they have the power to make the change or to expand their power to make change, they're generally going to do it. So devolution it doesn't happen all that often, but it's still an important term to know. Now, let's go over to uh, government funding. We talked about this with cooperative federalism, how the government will give a bunch of money to states to uh promote this change or promote, um, you know, for the general welfare of people. But uh, let's talk about specific grants. So state and local governments receive grants from the federal government, and the federal government generally attaches requirements. And the states produce these results and produce systems uh, that the federal government requires. All of this money being passed from the federal government to the state governments accounts for 16% of the federal budget. Think about that. 16% of all the money that the federal government coll collects gets redistributed back to the states. And these restrictions can be pretty much anything, but like I said before, typically include non-discrimination. With the power of grants, however, governments can sort of do some interesting things. So we have this term cross-cutting, which essentially uses these requirements uh, to influence one policy by withholding one from another. So like I said before, Ronald Reagan in the 80s said that every state has to raise its drinking age to 21, or the federal government's not going to give you any of this money for uh, your, your highways. This is cross-cutting, right? Taking one issue and saying, we're not going to give you money for highways unless you do X issue, Right. We're not going to give you money unless you raise your drinking age to 21. Now, of course, highway funding and your state drinking age don't have a lot in common with each other. But by cross-cutting these issues, Ronald Reagan was able to make all 50 states agree that the drinking age should be 21 or above. And they were able to get all of their highway funds because of that. And so now let's talk about the two specific types of grants. So there are project grants, which are sort of competitive applications. Think about them as a scholarship, right? I'm sure many of you are applying to scholarships. You might have to write an essay, or you might have, a, have to have a high GPA, or you might need to have X amount of uh, volunteer hours, right? Whatever it is, they're competitive. Uh, only a few groups or, ev or a few states may get these applications. And so say that a state government is um, competing for some type of, I don't know, funds for education. They want to reform their education. They send this beautiful letter to the federal government saying, hey, we'd really like all of this money to do uh, to provide new computers to all our students and uh, update our school security systems and install a, uh, a free lunch program for all students who uh, qualify for uh, federal food stamps, right? They can do that. And the government might say, hey, this is a really beautiful essay you've got here. I don't know, New Hampshire. We're going to give you all this money, right? The other type is formula grants. And formula grants are basically 
purely numbers, right? Say, let's use New Hampshire again, right? Say New Hampshire is sitting at 12% homelessness. They have a huge homelessness population. I don't think New Hampshire does, but for this example, let's say they do, right? New Hampshire, huge homelessness population. Federal government steps in and says, hey, we ran the numbers. You've got so many people on, uh, so many people who are, who are homeless. We're going to fund these massive projects to build more homes uh, so that, uh, you know, housing prices go down, it's more affordable for people, and people who are homeless right now are going to be able to afford a home later on. Right. This would be a formula grant. You are taking a population, uh, an average income, a number of people who fit X criteria, and you're going to give an amount of money based on that. And then finally, our last uh, type of grant is a block grant. And these are typically larger bills that have less regulations to them. Uh, essentially, it allow, it's, it's essentially a blank check uh, to the states. Say, Tennessee... Uh, is, you know, kind of struggling with money, the federal government steps in and says, hey, we'll give you $5 billion. Go spend it however you wish, right? That would be an example of a block grant. Federal government steps in, says, you know what? You've been a good little state. We're going to give you, uh, you know, this amount for an allowance this year. And they allow the state to basically do whatever they want with that money. And the states, as you can imagine, love this because there are no restrictions based on how they can spend that money. And they really like it. But they're not so big on the mandates. States typically hate uh, hate all of these mandates, but they love to take the money for them. Uh, and so when the feds expe uh, expand requirements, the states essentially have to raise taxes or kind of abandon the program. Say the federal government stepped in with Medicare and said, you know what, we're going to require that people who make under X amount of money get free health care right? Don't have to pay any taxes for it anymore provided by the states. Well, how are the states going to do that if they're not allowed to tax individuals? Well, they have to raise taxes on another class or another group of people or another business or a corporation or find money somehow, or they can opt out of that program, right? So typically these mandates, uh, when they expand, and especially when they expand without governments giving them any amount of money, uh, to help cover that cost, states hate it. They absolutely hate it. Um, there, wasn't a good, there was a good example in the book about the Americans with Disabilities Act, which requires that a lot of, uh, essentially a lot of renovations take place so that people who, say, are, are stuck in a wheelchair, right? Uh, you need to be able to have a government, uh, a government building be accessible to people who are in wheelchairs. You need to be able to have ramps. You need to allow people to be able to roll up from the curb up to a sidewalk, etc., etc. The Americans with Disabilities Act, however, had no money within it. And so the states were expected to cover that cost. And the federal government basically handed all these states these new rules, and the states, without any money to go along with it, had to raise taxes on their citizens to be able to afford... Uh, putting in all these new uh, rules and regulations that the federal government had required of them. And so mandates are typically really, really hated by the state governments. And state governments typically try to avoid getting mandates, spend a lot of money trying to get out of uh, having to follow these mandates, or essentially kind of lobbying 
uh, the United States Congress to not adopt certain types of mandates. And ultimately, at the end of this, you might be asking, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we make it so complicated? Why can't we just give the federal government all this power? And that's because federalism essentially allows for democracy to exist. Federalism, for all its complicated, beautiful messes that I've just described to you, essentially divides power and stops from a dictator being able to rise up and control the states or the local government. Voters get to vote at local and state governments. Uh, states get to represent different values and ideas. This promotes different inter interests for people and different interests of the state and localities uh, in which the elected officials represent. It allows for uh, losing elections to be acceptable. It allows for the peaceful transfer of power. If you lose the presidential election, you've always got the state governments to fall back on, right? If you lose the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Supreme Court, that's fine. You've still got 20 states that are under your control. And, uh, you know, if your presidential candidate, who you invested all this time into, loses, gets rejected by the voters, um, you've still got a bunch of candidates for the next time around, right? If uh, there are constantly being governors and elected officials trying to make uh, a ton of policies and a, a ton of changes throughout the, the country, some of which you might agree with, some of which you might not agree with, some of which you most certainly will disagree with. Um, but essentially, having all these elected officials at lower level positions allows voters to get a taste of what uh, a potential president or a potential senator or a potential representative might do if given more power. And it prevents power-hungry people from just being able to jump from the, ver from the very bottom to the very top and say, you know what, make me president. I haven't done anything. I'm not, I haven't, you know, run a local government. I haven't really, you know, run a state government. I haven't been a governor. And throughout most of American history, you've seen that in general, some modern exceptions, uh, one notable one that you're probably thinking of, but in general, our presidents have been people who are deeply involved in politics, people who have 10, 20 years of experience. And you might not like that, completely fine. You know, um, there are a lot of people in Washington who are pretty corrupt, pretty, pretty, pretty obvious to say, I guess. Um, but at least you get a taste of what, what, a, what a potential presidency would look like for this person. And it allows democracy to flourish and allows for the voters to essentially be able to pick uh, between two informed options. Not people who would hypothetically do this if they had power, but people who had already had power, already had influence, and who've already passed some series of policies that either benefited you or didn't benefit you. And you get to make that informed decision when giving them more power or deciding ultimately to give them no power or at least a little less power than they had before. And so, again, federalism, it's complicated. It's a difficult, difficult thing to talk about. Pretty difficult to grasp. The reason this, this episode came out a little later than the test for many people is because it took me a second to, like, sort of wrap my head around all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, federalism divides power, not between governments, but between people. It allows for the people to make informed decisions. And that is ultimately the power 
of federalism. It divides that power up, yes, between federal, uh, different levels of government, but most importantly, it allows for the people to decide how each of these different levels of government will impact their lives. And that's really the beauty of federalism. And so with that said, I think that's all I wanted to say. And I hope you learned something new, and I hope you'll come back for chapter four. Goodbye.